Good morning. So glad that you're here this morning. I do want to start with a prayer. Friday, we lost a wonderful man of God, a shepherd in the church, making ties and waiting in them. I should be praying also for his wife, Jan, his daughter, Jessica, because they need to work without money. Also, when you pray for Blake Dozier, we spent a lot of time with that family lately, and he's poured his heart into that family. Good friends with Blake and his wife. So keep it in your prayers as well. That memorial service will be this Tuesday, 2 p.m. at Baker Heights. You're able to attend and show your love to that family. Let's go see God in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we are so blessed with life. We thank you so much for eternal life that comes from your Son and that hope. In situations like this, though they are grievous and though we mourn, we can have hope of something better than this life. We pray at this time for Wayne and for his family. We pray for, pray for Blake and pray, pray that you'll be with them moving forward. Pray that you'll help them to heal what they know. Help our church family to be a strengthened and the hope that uh, the children of God are with you for eternity. What a glorious hope. We do not grieve like those who have no hope. And that is certainly a wonderful thing. Help us, God, to serve you to the best of our ability until our time on earth is done. And help us to remember that life is short. Thank you so much. It's in your son's precious name we pray. So let's dig in. Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48, read like this. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. Now, some people try to rationalize this episode in Jesus' life by suggesting, well, Jesus wasn't really angry like we get angry. You know, that Jesus was, you know, utilizing righteous anger here, although Scripture never uses that term. And people like to say, well, he, he wasn't exactly like us here. You know, we, we have anger, but, you know, Jesus was different. You know, look, folks, I, I don't care how you describe it, Jesus was fired up in this moment. He was mad. And he had every reason to be, which is what we're going to look at. But this is not the picture of Jesus that we're accustomed to. What is? Well, we like to see Jesus, and we picture Jesus swaddled, lying in a manger, somebody who's meek and humble, who's submissive and meeker and lowly and all those kind of things. But here, we have a completely different portrait of Jesus. He storms in and shows people who's false. He basically destroys the place, scattering animals and people in the process. And his voice rings out through the temple courtyard as he cracks his whip and he tosses tables. If you really dig into the episode, you see why Jesus was really angry. You actually look at John chapter 2 for a little more insight. In John chapter 2, starting at verse 13, it reads, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. 
And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture some events, like the Olympics, or maybe some national convention, where a lot of people gather and they descend on a particular location for a particular purpose. That is what is happening here. You see, under law, any Jew that lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem was required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover each year. But by the time Jesus roamed the earth, Jews had been scattered far and wide. Still, Jews wanted to attend a Passover at least once in their life. It was a bucket list item. And so they were really excited to get the opportunity to at least descend on the, the city of Jerusalem at least one time to celebrate the Passover. Now the problem was that these money changers, these Jewish leaders, were making it difficult at every turn. It's estimated that some 2.25 million Jews would have been Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. So what caused Jesus to wield a rope and to start driving out animals and people? Well, for starters, every Jew 19 years old was required to pay a temple tax. So you had 19 years of age and older, you were required to pay a temple tax. And this temple tax was just for the purpose of keeping the temple activities running, sacrifices, things of that nature. No different than what we do here as we take up a contribution in order to keep the lights on, pay the electric bill, all those kind of things. There was no problem with having a temple tax. The problem was that this temple tax became a means of extortion. You see, in order to worship in the temple, one would have to pay this tax. And the tax was one shekel or one half shekel, which was about two days' wages. Now, there were many different types of currency and circulation at this time. And there were people coming from all different areas to worship at the temple during the Passover. You had people from Egypt, from Tyre, from Sidon, all these different places, and they had their own currency. Now, it was not uh, illegal for you to drop your particular type of currency in the temple uh, change in order to contribute to this tax. You couldn't do that. Because any other any other currency or form of currency was considered unclean, and it might be used for other things, but it definitely couldn't be used to pay the temple tax. So you had to convert your money. So you would come in from Tyre, Sidon, Egypt, wherever it was, and you would give them your equivalent to a half temple, and they would change your money. Problem is, they charged you a whole lot of extra money to do that. Like, three times more, even sometimes more than that, just to change your money over. So people were traveling from long distances without a lot of money to begin with, and these temple money changers were getting rich off their backs. You can imagine if somebody's traveling from a, a great distance. You know, if you were going from Texas to Los Angeles, and you didn't have the use of a car, and you were traveling for many, many weeks and months just to get there, 
and then you get there and you've depleted a lot of your resources and then people are taking more money from you, even more than what they should, you might not even have enough money to get home. There was also this deal where people would come and they would want to give a sacrifice during worship. And so they would come in and uh, maybe they didn't have an animal, so they wanted to buy an animal. Well, animals were readily available for people who wanted to sacrifice. The problem was those animals had to be without blemish, right? So someone could buy an animal at about five times the rate of what they would pay for it in their own country, in their own land. And then that animal had to be inspected before it could go through with the process. And the inspection cost a whole lot of money. So here's someone who just wants to worship God. They just wanted to offer a sacrifice. And these temple money changers, they're making money hand over fist on the backs of these people who are already poor to begin with. Kind of like going to the movies. You pay this exorbitant amount of money to get your ticket. Then you pay an exorbitant amount of money for a hot dog and a Coke. At the end of it, you're left thinking, you know, I hope this movie's good, right? Because I just paid a whole lot of money for something that uh, may not be worth it at all. It's kind of like when I go to Red River, New Mexico every year for the Red River family encampment. You descend on this tiny town in the mountains of New Mexico, and I realize it's hard to get supplies into this little town because it is situated in such a remote area in, in the mountains. You have to go over Bobcat Pass. It must be difficult for big trucks. But you go there, and, and for a week, I, I just take my own food. You can eat out there, and there's a couple of places that are good, but for the most part, the food's not very good at all. And it's twice as much because they know they can charge you twice as much, right? Because they got you there. And that's kind of what was happening here in Jerusalem. You come to the temple, you want to worship, and this is a bucket list item. You want to be there, you want to, you want to serve God, and you want to, you want to make a, a, a sacrifice. And all these people cared about was making money. That's what fired Jesus up. Jesus acted out of anger because God's house was being desecrated. Jesus acted out of anger because the whole purpose of the occasion had been lost. The Passover was a time to remember. It was a time to feast and to celebrate. That had been greatly overshadowed by corruption and greedy individuals who were making money hand over fist on the backs of people who were poor and could barely afford, afford to be there in the first place. Jesus was angry because worship had been made difficult. And worship shouldn't be made difficult. There was no reverence. The primary purpose of the temple was to be a place of worship, but that had been lost in the lust of prophets. People should have found it easy to go to worship, but instead, some extortionists had made it anything but. And Jesus was angry because some people had nowhere to pray, nowhere to serve God. You see, within the temple, there were different courts. There was the court of women. There was the court of, of, of non-Jews, like the court of Gentiles. Only the Jews were allowed into the bigger part of the temple. The court of the Gentiles is where these money changers had set up shop. So the Gentiles had nowhere to worship. This greatly angered Jesus. A non-Jew had nowhere to worship God, and he should have a place to worship God. That's why he said, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And finally, Jesus was mad because people were being treated unjustly. And this may be the biggest point of his anger. You can go back to the Minor Prophets, you can see one of the reasons that the people incurred God's wrath is because he was angry at the way 
the leaders were being unjust towards those who were poor, making money off of them. And Jesus says, people are being treated unfairly here, and that's not right, especially in my Father's house. How many of you ever seen C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Have you read the book? If you know that, that story, you know that it's from the, the Chronicles of Narnia series. In this, this book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lucy and Edmund are seeking Aslan. Aslan is the, the big, majestic lion who represents Jesus in C.S. Lewis's epic story. And so they find this beautiful white lamb. And this beautiful white lamb begins speaking to them. And then as it's speaking to them, it morphs and transforms into the majestic Aslan, that huge lion that, of course, represents Jesus and Lewis's story. And the lion speaks to Lucy and Edmund, scattering light from his mane. He is beautiful and majestic. And, of course, the great truth that is to be derived from that point in the story is that the Lamb of God is also the Lion of Judah. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but He is also bold and strong and courageous and is to be respected and revered. And that's really what we're seeing happening in Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. The Lamb is roaring like a lion. Remember remember when they had those WWJD bracelets? What would Jesus do? You ever thought about answering that question, what would Jesus do with wielding a whip and turning over tables? That's not how we think of Jesus, is it? That's not the picture that we have in our mind. No, the picture that we have in mind of Jesus, as I said a moment ago, was, was one that's meager and, and, and soft and, and swaddled in a manger. I don't know if you see that picture real well, but this is the Italian Jesus, is what I call him. This is how we often depict Jesus, right? Beautiful, blow, uh, uh, flowing uh, uh, brown hair with auburn highlights, and he's got piercing blue eyes and a perfectly manicured beard. That's how we think of Jesus, right? Yet in Isaiah's description, we see a very different depiction of Jesus, don't we? One that's not described like this at all. You know, when we see Jesus today in artist renderings and depictions, you know, he would be someone, if he, if he lived today, would be on the cover of GQ magazine, right? One of people's sexiest men alive. But that's not how Jesus looked, more than likely. In fact, not very likely at all. I think we can, we can discern from Isaiah's writings that... Uh, Jesus didn't look like Brad Pitt in Legends of the Fall. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. That depiction of Jesus is completely out of line with this, right? When we look at like artist renderings who have tried to be accurate in what Jesus looked like. In 2015, there was a medical artist by the name of Richard Neve who used forensic and what archaeological evidence is available from people who lived during that time, and, and he reconstructed the face of Jesus. And here's what he came up with. Now, I'm not saying he looked exactly like that. Probably more of an accurate depiction than what we see oftentimes today. That's not much to look at. That's not the image of Jesus that we often think of. But our depictions of Jesus are often wrong, aren't they? Regardless of what he looked like on the outside, Jesus was a man who experienced all the emotions that any of us would experience. 
Right before we read about him tossing tables and wielding a whip, we read this in verses 41 and 42. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. That's the Jesus we're accustomed to see. The one that, the one that wept. The one that bitterly wailed over Jerusalem because the people would not accept him. We get surprised when we see Jesus now, or that he got angry. But Jesus' anger is no different than God's anger when you think about it. God got angry, didn't he? He got angry at Moses when he refused, or when he tried to get out of a weasel out of uh, leading the Israelites out of Egypt. God was angered by the mistreatment of those who are helpless, the strangers, the widows, the orphans. God was angered by the grumbling and complaining of the Israelites. God became angry when his people turned from him to serve worthless idols. So it should come as no surprise that the Son of God would be angry. I mean, like father, like son, right? Plus, this isn't the only time we see Jesus get angry. He was angry with the Pharisees for their stubbornness and hard, hardness of heart. He was angry and seems to be angry when he pronounced those woes upon the Pharisees in, in Matthew chapter 23. I think the Lamb of God roaring like a lion bothers people. And I think it bothers people because they think that anger is some sort of emotional flaw. And Jesus was not emotionally flawed. We know that. But is that really what anger is? Is anger really an emotional flaw? I mean, Jesus, being human like all of us, faced temptation. Like you and me, he faced that temptation, yet he was without sin, right? So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us contemplating the anger of Jesus versus the anger of people like you and me. Remember a couple of weeks ago when you were so angry you couldn't see straight? Remember that? No, you don't. Because it was so dumb, you've already forgotten about it. There was no reason you should have been angry in the first place. Why do we allow people that we don't even know or situations that we can't control have so much control over us, right? Why do we allow so many things to anger us to the point that we're ready to spit in it? That we do things that are ungodly. Most of the time, our anger stems from selfish reasons, doesn't it? We get angry because we live in a competition society. We get angry as we compete with others and they beat us. We get angry because people won't do what we want them to do. We get angry because we don't get our way. We get angry because if people would just live life like we do, everything would be in harmony and the world would be right. Our anger is very different than the anger of Jesus. I hear people who get angry sometimes say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, but Jesus got angry. Yeah, but you're not Jesus. And you're telling me that God being angry because His people were worshiping and serving idols is the same as your anger over the person who's driving too slow in the left lane on a two-lane highway. You're telling me that Jesus wielding a whip and scattering the people from the temple, that that anger is the same kind of anger that you feel when someone doesn't turn on their blinker. Not the same thing. Why are you angry? Why was Jesus angry? You see, anger isn't so much the problem. It's what we do with our anger. Anger is tied to something else. Anger is an emotion. 
and emotions by and large are neutral. You know, the Bible says, be angry, yet do not sin. Nowhere does the Bible say, be lustful, yet do not sin. The Bible doesn't say, be envious and do not sin. Be greedy, yet do not sin. The reason it doesn't say those things is because greed and envy and, and lust, they're all sins, period. Be angry, yet do not sin. You can be angry, yet not sin. So the question becomes, what do you do with your anger? What do you produce out of your anger? What does it lead to? Oftentimes the problem is not the emotion, it's the recklessness with which we handle the emotion. We get so mad that we lash out, we get angry at other people, and we later regret it. We throw a fit and we turn over tables, but not the reason that Jesus did so. Some go so far as inflicting harm on another person. Some go so far, unfortunately, as killing other people. What do you do with your anger? How do you handle it? Ephesians 4.26 reads, Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You can be angry and not sin. It was about three or four years ago, all my girls, I had two girls, all my kids were home, both girls were home. It was a summer where we had everybody together. And I, I don't remember what the cause of it was, but uh, Libby was at her wit's end because the girls were just not pulling their weight. They, were, uh, they weren't cleaning up after themselves. It was just kind of, you know, that just lack of appreciation kind of thing. And I could tell she was frustrated. And as, as the father, as the spiritual head of the household, I thought, well, I'm going to have to step in and do something. And so uh, I went upstairs. I called them both together. Before I went upstairs, I thought to myself, I'm going to go in guns and blaze. I'm going to make a point. Am I really that angry? Not necessarily, but I'm going to act like it. And so I stormed in and I said, how dare you treat my wife that way? How dare you drive the cars I buy you, use the cell phones that I buy you, eat the food that I buy you, and you show no appreciation. I mean, I went on and I was firing for both of them. I got done, I stormed out of the room, and of course they were boo-hooing and felt horrible. I made my point, right? It's kind of like when you're coaching basketball. There were times at halftime I wasn't really as mad as I carried out uh, you know, my anger in the dressing room. But I felt like you had to make a statement. You know, fire the kids up. Maybe that's a terrible rationalization, but you see what I'm getting at. My, my anger had a purpose. Jesus' anger had a purpose. He wasn't reckless with his anger. And there are times that I believe that, and, and you can disagree with me on this if you want, but I think we all need a little bit of lion in us, don't we? I think we all need that little bit of lion in us that is bold and courageous and that is willing to stand up and, and, and say, this is not right. We're treating people unfairly. We can't have that happen. God's word is being compromised. God's truth is being compromised. Of course, having a little lion in you doesn't excuse acting ungodly. You can be a lion as long as you remember who your trainer is. That's important. Here's what you need to know about Jesus' anger. It's consistent with the holy and righteous character of God. It's not explosive. Jesus didn't have a hair-trigger temper. He's not a hothead. And it was always under control. Jesus' anger is not unlike that of his father's. And, and here's what the Scripture says about God's anger. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. 
visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. 2 Peter 3, 9 reads, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, I love Psalm 78, verse 38. But He, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them, and often He restrained His anger and did not arouse all His wrath. God doesn't fly off the handle. God doesn't act like we do so often in our anger. He doesn't react only in anger to regret it, regret it later. Repeatedly, he warned the sinful people through prophets that he would eventually pour out his wrath if they didn't turn around. He exercised grace over and over again, but there came a point where he could no longer hold back. But wrath and anger does not control God. I think that really is the biggest difference between God's anger, Jesus' anger, and our anger. All too often, our anger controls us, rather than us controlling our anger. So here's where I want to end up with all of this this morning. Who's the temple today? Or where's the temple today? Maybe we should ask it that way. We are the temple of God, right? We are God's house. You as an individual Christian. Us as the church, right? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body. Second Corinthians six sixteen, Paul writes, For we are the temple of the living God. We are God's temple. You, as a part of this body, are his temple. Which brings me to a question. Are you perverting God's house? How are you living your life? Are you consumed with anger and bitterness and wrath? You know, we see an episode in Luke chapter 19 where Jesus cleaned house. Do you need to clean house this morning? You need to get your house in order. Actually, that's not even accurate. It's not your house. It belongs to God. You are the temple. Get it clean. If we can help you in some way, come now as we stand and as we sing.